This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Good Wednesday afternoon. Welcome to today's edition of On Target. Not Linda Swain at your service this afternoon. Jerry Lynn Mackey sitting in the big chair on behalf of Linda Swain as she's off this week. And I'd like to introduce my guest, Josh Smee of Food First NL. Josh, thanks so much for taking time to come in studio and yeah, chat. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be back in the room with somebody. Well, and it's always such a huge conversation around the province, food security itself with the rising costs and so many other factors that are coming together around it. Yeah, there is a lot on the go. And I think you're right. Uh, you know, I saw some some polling the other day asking people what was the issue that was weighing most on their minds and, and cost inflation is the biggest one in the country right now. And, and food is a big part of that. So I think it's it is really top of mind for people in the province at the moment, for sure. Yep. Everybody loves to eat, too. That's the other factor yep. uh, for anyone who's just tuning in or maybe someone who's home for come home here and they aren't familiar with Food First. And I'll tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Yep. So we're a provincial nonprofit organization uh, that works on food security. We've been around for about 20 years now. um, And what we do is bring people together uh, to strengthen food security in the province in a bunch of different ways. So a lot of our work is connecting people with each other. We know there's thousands of people in this province working on food in some way, whether you are running a food program, whether you're doing advocacy work, whether you're running a community garden. And so a lot of what we do is connect those people with each other, make sure people know what's happening, make sure people know where they can go for support and for funding, those kind of things. So that's a big part of our work. Uh, We do a lot of policy advocacy work. So uh, we try and listen to what's going on out in the food system and bring some of that into conversations about policy change, whether that's around things like income and income support, whether that's around land use, any kind of policy that affects how we eat and what we eat is uh, on our radar screen. Um, And then we try and enable things at the grassroots, right? So we we have programs of our own uh, on the ground all over the province. Uh, That can be everything from, you know, we've spent years collecting uh, stories from seniors about food traditions, Uh, to right now, for example, we're doing a bunch of work with food retailers around strengthening the retail food environment in the province. So it all comes around to what can we do to make Newfoundland Newfoundland and Labrador a place where everyone has access to affordable, adequate, healthy food. And that's a pretty big ask, actually, right? Like when you think about what we need to change for that to be true, uh, there's always a a few things to be at for sure. And so, wow, like right across the province you're working. Yep. So we have uh, we have staff based uh, across the province uh, and our our programs. We really do try and have things uh, have things on the ground all over Newfoundland and Labrador. I'll say, actually, the pandemic has made some of that easier. It's, you know, it's a little bit easier these days to to pull people together virtually than it used to be. Uh, And that is a real asset to this kind of work that you can, you know, pretty easily these days, for example, organize a, a focus group of people from all over Newfoundland and Labrador on a Zoom call where, you know, two or three years ago, that was a real challenge for us. It was just off the like table. Our, totally. Yeah. So, But we do have on-the-ground programs. We're doing a bunch of work, for example, in partnership with Labrador Grenfell Health up in Labrador around uh, 
access to traditional foods. We have um, work on the West Coast, and we're actually just now, and this is a plug, uh, we're just now hiring uh, regional animator positions. And those regional animators are a big part of it because, like I said, a lot of what we do is connect people to each other. And so we're aiming to have one person on the ground in every region of the province for the next few years. And a big part of their job is just going to be figuring out what people are doing uh, in the food space and making sh- and getting them connected to each other. And I think there's there's a lot of space for that, uh, you know, uh, as well as I do, Jerrilyn, that um, the, the issues and the solutions are not the same, mm-hmm. say, from the Buren Peninsula to the Northern Peninsula to Central Newfoundland, right? And so you do need to have some some idea of what would work in a and that really specific level for sure yeah so what are some of the differences that you would see from say like this region here in in the avalon area to other areas what what are they for sure so i think one of the things we think about is like how how are people accessing um the services and supports that they need and how dense those services and supports are right so um we've done a ton of work in the last couple of years because of the pandemic on emergency food um and so if you're living in and around Metro St. John's, I would say the level of need in this region is very high. Um, so if you look, we run a, a community food helpline, which is kind of a service of last resort for people to call. Uh, and the vast majority of calls come from Metro, but the vast majority of services are here. And so you can do things like door-to-door deliveries. Uh, you can you can access uh, people in a bunch of different ways. Whereas I think one of the biggest challenges in rural parts of the province, less populated parts of the province is just physical access to support whether that's with emergency food or anything else gets really tricky if you live in a community that's you know say a few hundred kilometers away from uh the nearest large town or or the nearest source of 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 groceries that really affects how you fit into the food system Mm -hmm. right and so i think um it's good to know and understand where are those places that that are more dependent on what's around locally and and where are the places where there is a bit more of a regional uh uh, sort of systems of support, right? And and that changes a lot, even for, even in the different, more rural parts of the province. You know, there are some folks who have easier access to, to services and, and, and some folks who don't and, and in food that really does end up mattering. So you definitely want to keep a kind of ear to the ground to figure out um, what that looks like. And the demographics are really different. Yeah. Again, like, you know, the, the population of, say, uh, the Northern Peninsula versus, versus Central Newfoundland, quite different in terms of uh you know age and what people are working at and all these kind of things and it affects how you're trying to support people with food for sure who do you think like what demographic across newfoundland and labrador would be most vulnerable to food insecurity that's a good question so uh, we know something about that nationally we don't have great data at the province by province level um but we know okay so in this province in general around one in six households uh is food insecure and that means you don't know where your next meal is coming from uh you have some insecurity about all the way up to being actively hungry that moment right so there's a range of things in 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 that bucket and we do know that they're nationally that there are groups of folks who are really disproportionately vulnerable so uh big among that would be uh women-led single-parent households so the food insecurity rate nationally is upwards of 30%. So uh, double, really, what the rate in the general population would be. Uh, That's also true nationally for Indigenous households uh, and for Black 
led households, black families. Um, and what that has to do with usually is uh, in both cases, a long history of racism means that your family has less access to resources, right? You might have less uh, you know, uh, less wealth in your extended family that you could call on. You know, people don't have money put sort of away. A exactly. Thing. There's the, like generational barriers to accumulating something that you can fall back on is a big challenge. And so you're right, right? There are um, food insecurity doesn't hit people equally. It is uh, there are some uh, you know populations that are particularly vulnerable. And again, we don't have data on that direct for Newfoundland and Labrador, but I think we can. Um, you know, you can you can assume that those numbers probably hold something close. And then, of course, folks who live in isolated northern communities, right? Like anyone who's listening to this who lives, for example, uh, on the North Coast, you you know, you see the prices of food in your grocery store and you know that that exposes you to 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 more risk. But there is, a, you know, a lot of really strong supports available to help compensate for it but it's still a real so like challenge, networking right? within the communities to yeah. compensate and you see that in, in nationally right like uh you know food insecurity in the territories in Nunavut and the territories is far higher than in, in the provinces and a lot of uh, for that reason that the logistics and the costs are so much higher and so that's that's also true in the province for sure and now recently i attended the launch of a food action plan from food first and a big plan three-year plan tell me break it down for me one more time yeah sure so <laughs> It, it's a, it's a big tangly thing. So, um, a couple of years ago, we started doing what's called a community-led food assessment in, here. In, I'm sitting in Metro. It was here in Metro, and this is a process that our organization we've done a bunch of these all over the province, uh, primarily in smaller communities. So we've done them in places like Round Counter or Regalette. Uh and so this was our first crack at doing one in a really large city. And what these processes are is a really big, long community engagement to ask people and understand what do people's food systems look like? How are you accessing food? What are the gaps and the barriers and things that you're facing um, in St. John's to getting the food that you need? Uh, and so after... Ooh, upwards of 18 months of consultation wow. and of course right in the middle of a pandemic so the normal way you might do this kind of thing would be a million focus groups in a tiny town, hall meetings, town exactly. hall meetings and so of course we had to had to do things really differently uh, but we did you know between surveys and and outdoor events and all kinds of consultations and things we reached hundreds and hundreds of people um much more than that and and one thing that came out of this was i think a good sense of where the community wanted to go around food that we that there's I think we have a good sense of what some of the priorities would be and so what this action plan is is trying to map some of that stuff out and so it's not just a plan for food first uh, it's not a plan for any one organization it's a plan that says okay if you want to work on food here's what the community is saying and let's figure out where you can be slotted in in this plan because there's a lot happening right now in St. John's in a good way there's a healthy city strategy on the go uh, but that's a part partnership between the city and Eastern Health. There is all this work that's happening um, around things like community gardening. Uh, and uh, and there's the work that we're able to support. There's tons of organizations. So we're trying to tie them all together around some priorities. So some of that will be kind of marching orders for Food First to say, okay, when we do work in St. John's, here's the things that we can pick off that menu. But also for anyone else who wants to do work on food, that action plan is now there. And you can say, okay, uh, you know, it's clear, for example, that like access to culturally specific foods is a big deal in St. John's. There's lots of good work happening around this. So if you can't move here from somewhere else and 
feeling at home. Uh, a lot of that is like access to the foods that you're familiar with. And there's some big opportunities to make that stronger. That's probably not something that we need to run with because there's lots of other people at it. Right. Um, but there are some projects that we'll take out of that action plan. And, and there's a chance for, for people to look at it themselves and say, okay, here's something I want to run with. Right. Almost like an overseer of the networks. But hold that thought, Josh. We're coming right thought back helped. here. When we return on, on Target, we're going to discuss this uh, in depth a little more. My guest is Josh Smee, Food First NL. Stay with me on VOCM. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Good Wednesday afternoon. No, not Linda Swain. Jerry Lynn Mackey at your service. Welcome back to today's edition of On Target. My guest, Josh Smee with Food First NL. Now, let's see. Where were we, Josh? We we were kind of talking about the action plan. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what are some of the, I guess, the findings that have come through after 18 months of consultation? Yeah. It, it breaks down into a few themes. That's probably the easiest way of thinking about it. Um, this is the, the core things that came out of talking to people in St. John's about food. One is that people want to get into talking about policy. People want to have the opportunity and the the capacity and the skills and the knowledge to talk about food uh, at those tables, right? So part of the action plan is like, what can we do to increase civic engagement around food? Mm-hmm. That really matters. Uh, people really want to talk about this stuff. I mean, it's no, uh, that should be probably no surprise to you how often you hear about food in your job. Yep. People are really passionate about it uh, and they want to figure out how can we get that passion on the right at the right tables right um and then there's a whole other priority around access to local food. People had a lot to say about this. Um, so that's, and in the St. John's context, some of that is about things like uh, increasing the profile of, of food that is already grown within the city. We actually have a good set of farms within St. John's. How do we profile them? Um, and then the other one, and this is one that we'll be running with ourselves, is around physical access to food. There's lots of parts of the city. If you live in uh, in a neighborhood that's far from a grocery store and like many people in St. John's, particularly folks on the lower end of the income scale, you might not have access to a car. Your access to food can be really limited. And so we heard a lot about that. Um, and that's, we're going to be piloting a mobile food market in the city starting this year as one way of getting around that particular problem. And so that would bring like locally grown food or, or Probably all, all foods. Yeah. So I, yeah, it's not meant to be a f- kind of farmer's market on wheels. The goal is to figure out, and this is one of the questions we have a bit more, now some community plan to do, to go around to, to community and ask, okay, if, if a truck was showing up uh, every so often in your neighborhood to set up a local food market, what are the most important things for you? Like, what what is the hardest for you to access? What do you really want to have on your table? And so I don't think it will be all kind of staples. locally grown things. It'll probably be staples. Yeah. yeah. What, are, what are the, you know, what are the things that you really need to feed your family a, a, a good diet? And, and uh, that'll be something that this truck can bring around. And we're, we're lucky that this kind of program exists all over um, all over the country. There's a really solid one in Halifax, for example, cool. that we have a chance to kind of pattern on and, and learn from. Uh, so it would be like a moving grocery store. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yep, that's the idea. And the other thing that a lot of these uh, mobile food markets do is they also help support food programs. So, uh, you know, if the, the meal programs and food banks and things in the city, a lot of them are just sending volunteers or staff to buy from the grocery store like you or me. Uh, but where mobile food markets exist, they can also help do like 
bulk buying for food programs, things like that. So just make the whole um, system work better. Uh, and then there was a whole other kind of area of um, priority around connecting through those kind of food programs. And I think people really, there's a lot of opportunity to do a, a more uh, pulled together job even of just mapping everything that's there in the city right there's a lot going on in food um, and there are a lot of maps we have maps other people have maps some of this is about you know bringing people the information they need so you know exactly what's on the go what's available in the community where you can where you can fit in to get the resources exactly type of thing, right right uh, um, and then there was a whole other theme that we heard a lot from which was from young people and young people said that they really wanted to be involved in the kind of awareness raising around food um, so when we talk to young people, they say, we know this is an issue. We want to push it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, I think, one of the, the things that we hope comes out of some of this action plan is creating some venues for young people who care about this issue to be part of raising awareness about it. Because that's where when we talk to youth as part of this process, there was a, there was a really big push. Um, and as part of that awareness raising uh, and part of the action plan, I think there's also a lot in there around elevating the conversation around poverty in St. John's. So, you know, what can we do to really push the conversation around the big solutions here? Because, you know, we're not going to end food insecurity until we really end poverty, right? That's the big core of this. Uh, and there's a lot that can be done at the municipal level to advocate and uh, around those kind of big picture solutions. And so I think there's there's a good push in that action plan to say, like, how can we work more closely together about the, the core issue, which is that people don't have enough money to get the food that they need right, right. Uh, and I think there's a lot of energy behind that right now and I guess you know that would fall under uh, basic income yeah we heard a ton about basic income and I think that's in in these consultations and all over it's on the tip of a lot of tongues right now and I think uh, one of the things that's worth reflecting on is you know where we are in the basic income conversation has changed drastically in the last few years in a, in a really positive way from our perspective I think like organizations who work on issues related to poverty so including ours, we work mm -hmm. on food, food insecurity, mostly about poverty. You know, for a long time, organizations like that have been saying a basic income would be a huge part of a, a solution here. What's happened now, though, is I'd say basic income is really being taken seriously as a policy idea, right? It's not something that advocates are pushing. It's something that's being costed out and figured out. Like, how would this work in practice? How much would it cost? Who would it impact? What else would we still need to do around it? Because it's not a, a, you know, a, a universal solution for everything. Uh, but we're having these conversations right now, right? And people are listening. You know, there's real progress around the country. So like in PEI, for example, a few months ago, the leaders of all the political parties, the, their government and opposition, signed a joint letter to the Fed saying, we are ready to go on basic income. So uh, that's very nonpartisan. Everyone's know, exactly. coming on board for that. Exactly. And so I think we're seeing that at the municipal level. There's lots of work happening uh, in cities around basic income. You know, place like Halifax, for example, their city council just voted in support of a basic income. And so I think, um, and that came out loud and clear in these mm -hmm. consultations. And, and for good reason, right? Like when we, it's funny, right? We talk about poverty and, and we talk about solutions to poverty. Poverty is primarily not having enough money and we haven't really tried giving people enough money. 
right? We, we've tried a lot of solutions around it, but there's so much evidence now about how much of a difference basic income makes and how it doesn't actually push people out of the workforce. People still work. They get better jobs. They get better educations. It's, uh, you know, we know a lot about what basic income does on the ground level from all these pilots that have happened around the world. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there is a lot of energy and we felt it through this process around that. And that's really exciting. Yeah. And I mean, number one, it gives people more, more food security, yep. which is what everybody wants. Yeah. And having that predictability is so key, yeah. right? Because I think, you know, right now, if you're relying on, on social supports to get by, if you're in a tough situation and you've fallen back on those supports, there's always a little bit of uncertainty. Is that safety net going to be under you in the same way? Whereas like, if you knew that your income just would never fall below a certain floor, um, you know, that the psychological security is there, the, the, you can make plans, you can say like, look, no matter what happens to me, I'm going to be at least okay. It's, it's still going to be tough. Like I, I think most, whatever happens for basic income, it probably wouldn't be a ton of money. It wouldn't be, a, you know, it would still be, be a struggle trips. to live on. Right. But uh, the, psycho the psychological security saying, no, there's no person judging whether I deserve this or not. You know, it's just like, this is everyone's right to have this much money um, and to survive. Uh, that's just, you know, and there's tons of research on this. It's so psychologically liberating. It lets you plan. And that's such a big part of food security. Absolutely, Josh. We're going to continue the conversation in a couple of moments. We'll take a little break here. When we come back, let's talk about some of the province-wide consultations that are underway with Food First NL. We'll be right back. Stay with me on your VOCM. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. And welcome back to On Target. Jerry Lynn Mackey sitting in the big chair for Linda Swain as she's off this week. Well, thank you so much for tuning in and joining me here as my guest today is Josh Smee with Food First NL. Josh, I think we could talk for three hours about some of the issues that are around food. 100%. Yeah, but I know that there's there's a real push now. You know, you're you're sort of doing consultations province-wide. Yeah, so one, one of the really important conversations we saw the need for, and I think lots of people have told us they wanted to have was around food charity. Um, so obviously, especially after the last couple of years, the our food charity system is kind of top of mind, right? Like uh, food banks, meal programs, a lot of and and others have been really um, pretty heavily engaged in in responding to the impacts of the pandemic. And now a lot of that is rolling into responding this to the cost of living crisis we're in, right? But uh, that whole system really it. We haven't taken a second look at how it works in an awfully long time. So, um, you know, the food bank system is about as old as I am. Uh, so, you know, in the early 80s, uh, dating myself here, but in the early 80s, uh, there was a recession on. And that's when the food banks were created for the first time, meant to be temporary, right? Wow. Uh, and we're 40 years in, and it's now this, this, it's a real system. And there are thousands of people doing a ton of work to help people access food but i think one of the things we really want to do is say what what should food access look like like a little bit blank slate um and so there's a few kind of questions here both is in the long term it's how do we get to a place where we don't need this stuff at all uh and so opening up some space for that conversation and in between now and then what can we do to make this system work better for people to be less stigmatizing to access uh to support the kind of diversity of of needs in in the community um and so what we're doing is 
we've been out for a few months already. We'll be going for the rest of the year talking both to food programs. And so mm-hmm. everything from surveys to focus groups saying, you know, what does your day-to-day look like? Um, where do you think there's opportunities to change or evolve? What support do you need to get there? Uh, and then talk to low-income folks primarily or people who either have used a food program or people who don't. Because one of the key things, when we learned this through the pandemic, is of all the people who are food insecure, probably less than one in 10 ever reach out to a food program for support, right? Really? So, yep. So for uh, ev- so people will not ask for help even though they need it. Yeah, and there's lots of reasons for it. Some of that is that they, uh, we don't know how this breaks down, but some of it is surely stigma that yeah. like folks uh, don't want to, you know, feel judged by, uh, you know, their community for doing so. Some of it is people don't know that the supports are available to them uh, or don't see it as something that would that would fit them some of them some might be folks who have for example dietary needs that can't be met by by food programs there's lots of reasons but we know that the the there's sort of an iceberg of of need that's only the tip of uh, only the tip of it's ever been touched by the system is ever visible yeah and I, i think one of the things we're seeing now though is over the pandemic the emergency food system has done some work to be more accessible kind of by necessity right things like delivery services came out which never used to be there and and once you have some of those services they make emergency food aid more accessible but that means that the demand the need grows grows, exactly and so we're in a tricky situation where you know this is emergency food uh charities are 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 big players in moments of crisis in people's lives but they can't solve the problem right they're, they're not set up to they, they, we're not going to end food security through food charity so what do we do here like i think that's the conversation we're trying to have is figure out what's the model for these systems that can do the best with what we've got and how do we get maybe a bit closer to not needing this at all and it's been a really interesting conversation so far people have been i think really candid about their experiences good and bad uh, and i think food programs have also been really candid and willing to, to 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 consider how they can really drive this conversation along because also food programs and f- uh, have a lot of weight in their communities mm-hmm. right there are thousands of people volunteer with them uh, and lots of people are involved with them and if they can help push for this change i think that's really positive right Absolutely. And speaking of the food networks, I mean, is it concerning to Food First NL that some of the locations that were within the Roman Catholic Church for food banks, you know, they're, they're, they may be sold off? For sure. Yeah, that ha- that's definitely something on everybody's radar screen. And especially now, because we do a fair bit of work um, trying to coordinate just, you know, for example, a database so that people can, can find where to go if they do need to reach out. Uh, and we do a fair bit of work with emergency food these days, and it is a real concern, right? Right? Um, that we will see these gaps in capacity emerge. On the other hand, you know, maybe that is a chance to, again, rethink, so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as things have to change because locations and organizations are closing because of this, what what's the model that would serve people going forward so hopefully you know also it like people will come to the table and and say okay let's let's make a plan together Mm -hmm. josh you also said that part of the consultation process is speaking with food service providers what are some of the points that have come forward that you know sort of perk your ears as as the executive director of food first nl i think um there is uh there's some really interesting 
thinking going on um, around what their role is in advocacy work, right? So if you're running, say, a small food bank or a soup kitchen. How do you get uh, the word out? How do you get the word out? And do you, should you be the one who goes and calls an MHA and says, what are you doing about poverty? Uh, and I think there is some strong interest from food programs to be more involved in pushing for those big solutions. That's really exciting to see uh, because I think their, their voices are incredibly important here. Um, the other thing is I think there's a lot of interest in, uh, in figuring out um, where program models can be less stigmatizing. So whether that is something like... Um, you know, doing deliveries or whether that's things like uh, you do see food programs, for example, moving away from the kind of uh, you get a box model of, of, of food support to uh, having shelves that people can shop or mm -hmm. other ways that people can kind of make their own choice about what kind of support that they're getting. So there's kind of there's some ground level stuff that I think we hear from food programs that they're really interested in exploring. You know, what are the best practices? What are we seeing? What are some ways to do things a bit differently? And there's also this top level stuff that food programs want to be engaged in in pushing to, to um, hopefully make themselves eventually not needed, right? And that's really important. Are they, did you hear anything? Because I've spoken to just a couple of, you know, providers of community yeah. services and food, and, and they've said that they can't meet the demand. Are you hearing that? 100%. And yeah. is it because of inflation? Yeah. I, so, I, I mean, I think it's both that, uh, like we were talking about the last segment, there are more people reaching out for support now, um, bec both because we've made it a bit easier for people to reach out, which is good, but also because um, inflation is putting such pressure, and it's putting pressure on both sides, right? Because food programs programs have to purchase the food that they're providing and so their dollars don't stretch nearly as far as they did a few months ago and uh, as like anyone who's listening to this will know our our food budgets as, as citizens don't go nearly as far so there's more and more people are being pushed into food insecurity by food price increases and they are then being met by a safety net that is already stretched because of those same increases so it's a really it's a really tough situation perfect right perfect storm yeah and you do certainly see uh, every food program I've talked to tells me about all the new faces that they're seeing every month, which is not something that would have necessarily been true a few years ago. But there are more and more people reaching out who, who might not have been part of the kind of client base before. Uh, and so that's, I think, indicative. Like, we are really in a shockingly challenging situation with food prices, right? Or, or people who were regular contributors to help yep. who have now switched, switched the side and now they need help. Absolutely, right? And that's why we talk about food insecurity as this kind of continuum, right? Because you can go pretty easily from maybe being a bit worried about where your next meal is coming from to be to being actively hungry overnight if something goes wrong. Say your car breaks down and you have to put 200 bucks into your brakes to keep going to work. There you go. And all these kind of small disruptions in people's lives cascade that way. Uh, and especially when everyone's living a little bit more on the margins because of food prices. Yep. Josh, we have so much more to talk about when we come back here on the next segment of On Target. Let's get into that inflation rate and the rising cost and, and maybe who is most impacted by those higher and higher costs. My guest today, Josh Smee, Food First NL. Stay with me on your VOCM. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m 
p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And welcome back to On Target. Jerry Lynn Mackey sitting in the big chair. Linda Swain is off this week, and I thank you so much for joining me here as I sit in for her. And, you know, we're having a conversation about food security. My guest today is Josh Smee, Food First NL. Josh, something I, I told you this off air, but I guess I will repeat it. The other week or so, I was at a grocery store and there was a senior, a woman in front of me in the lineup. And, you know, you, you don't want to put your nose into people's business. You don't want to intervene. But, you know, just seeing what she was getting, she had a $5 bill. She had veggie chips and juice. You know, to me, that doesn't seem like something that a senior wants to take home for lunch. How how are the food prices and the rising cost of that shaken out in the cards? Yeah, and I think it's a we are at a real crisis level mm-hmm. here. It's something that we haven't seen in many years. There will be people who remember the last time inflation was like this, but for lots of folks, it's the first first go at it, and so one of the things we're seeing is you know overall inflation is is high and that's hitting everybody uh and food price inflation has typically been higher than Mm. inflation overall so it's really um that part of people's household budgets has been among the most strained in the last little while and like we were talking about the last segment that strains anyone who where food is part of your budget line if you're an organization it strains household food costs uh and what we do see is that also as costs rise in other parts of people's lives, they're compromising on food because they have to cover other costs that are more fixed. So, you know, so a lower quality yeah, food that often happens. So when fuel prices go up and people have no access to public transport, they have to keep driving their car to get to work. They're going to cut down on their groceries. Right. And, and so you do often see um, that there's a huge impact on people's on people's diets, on people, what, what people can afford and what's in the house. And that has all kinds of long term costs. And we're going to be paying for a while right? It has health costs. Uh, You know, this is not something that's free, right? Like, even if you're just being kind of cold about it, the bill is going to come due in the health system years down the line, right? And so... Right, it's It's going to come out in the cards. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's really challenging. And it's, and it's a complicated business, because there are multiple things contributing to food prices going up. And yeah, so what is what is that the cause? So I think there's a few things on the go here. uh, One of them, of course, is uh, the pandemic, did really disrupt um, supply chains all over the world. And, you know, we talk a lot in Newfoundland about the fact that, uh, and Labrador about the fact that most of our food's imported. And, you know, it's just a good reminder. We are part of a, a really global food system. So when when COVID shut down a meat packing plant in Alberta, that pushes up our beef prices because most of our beef comes from there. You know, so uh, I think it's, that still is continuing. There are some, some pandemic disruptions. They're still making it more expensive to grow stuff or produce stuff and to ship stuff. That's one piece. There's a piece of it that is um, uh, sort of geopolitical, right? There's the there's the the war in Ukraine is affecting food grain. prices, grain prices around the world. There's a piece of it that's the climate crisis, and this is something where I think we really need to think about this as a as a as a province too, right? Is that we're tied into our global food system. We get food from all over the world. Um, every year, somewhere in the food system, there's a climate-related disaster that that pushes food prices up. And that's going to be happening more and more often, right? So I think w- we need to think a little bit about the fact that this is not the food economy of 
20 or 30 or 40 years ago, right? right so droughts, flooding, droughts, that type floods, of thing? fires. Like when you think about like last year or the year before, I forget when it was, but in Western Canada, there was a really bad right. drought. Um, you know, somewhere in the world, there's there are the every year there are multiple climate disruptions, and that's going to keep shaking up food prices. And then the third piece of it is that um, I think we need to lay the cards on the table that corporations have taken advantage of this, right? Like there's some pretty good research uh, out there now that uh, some portion of the price increase. Uh, I've seen figures around 25% has to do with people in business seeing that you and I expect prices to go up because we're hearing about inflations, inflation. And so that provides some room for, you know, for, for businesses and for large corporations to jack prices more. So than, greed. Yeah. It, it, and I think we need to be honest that greed is a part of the story. Um, and that, that, you know, this has been one of the most profitable years in history for some of the, the larger uh, players in the food system because people have been t- taking advantage of it. Right. And so greed plus, plus climate crisis plus politics plus COVID, it's created a little bit of a perfect storm from a food price perspective. Um, and sometimes it's hard to get a beat on, you know, exactly what percentage of the food price differences to each one of those but it is a, it's a tangly issue and some of that stuff is 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 a long-term challenge particularly the climate ones so hopefully the war in ukraine will end for example um the hopefully the impacts of the pandemic will fade for example but the impacts of the climate crisis are only going to get stronger and so we i think we need to think about that a lot actually it's like how do we goosebumps cope? yes yeah. truly yeah. yeah it's a it's a big deal and sometimes we because in newfoundland and labrador we're in new on the island at least we're a little bit insulated so far from like the worst impacts of, of climate change. Um, we sometimes don't remember that it's already really affecting our food and what we can buy and what's in the grocery store and how much it costs. Who is most likely to be impacted by higher food prices? I mean, it's always going to be folks on the lowest end of the income scale. Um, I think, you know, I think particularly right now of folks, if you're relying on income support, uh, because if you live on income support or rely on it, for example, uh, for one, it's incredibly low. So uh, we costed it out once. There's kind of a, a standard uh, measure of like what it would cost to, to feed a nutritious diet to a family of four. Mm-hmm. If that family of four were living on income support, they'd have to spend, I think, 120% of their entire income support check Over. just to buy the food. Uh, so it's just not, we, we are not providing people with enough to, to live, health, live healthily or to eat healthily. Um, and one of the things with income support is it used to be that we indexed it to inflation. So if, if prices went up by 5%, your income support would rise. We stopped right. doing that, which means that when we see something like we're seeing this year, say 5 10% inflation, right, that's, what it was. that's a cut. The, the effectively, we said to people, you get this much less money to live on. So folks in that situation are, are really challenged. Anyone who isn't in it, in, in, isn't indexed to inflation uh, is really tough. And that's true for most of us in the workforce. Not many contracts either so are indexed to inflation. Some people are, get a bump, get a bump on CPI, but most people don't, and particularly at the lower end of the pay scale, right? And so you're, again, losing you know, 5 10% of your salary every year right now, and that's a real challenge. Um, so I think those are the folks who are challenged the most. And of course, folks living in more remote communities where prices were already high and are now just astronomically high. Um, it just layers on that already fragile setup. I know there's so many layers to this conversation. And before we start to clue up here, I would like you, you know, anyone who's listening who wants to take part in these province-wide consultations, how 
How can they do that? Yeah, the easiest way is to, we have a website set up to map out how you can get engaged for that. So foodfirstnl.ca slash rethink will take you to this, uh, the landing page for Rethinking Food Charity, uh, and you'll get a sense of where you can where you can dive in. And then the, the St. John's work we talked about is at foodstjohns.ca. We kind of set up its own website for that, so you can check it out there. And how important is it for you, you know, as, as Food First NL, the sort of keeper of all the networks, how important is it that more people and more people fill out these surveys? I, I mean, it's very important, right? Like, uh, our organization is, uh, you know, we're not just a, uh, our own voice. We need to understand what things look like on the ground. And and it really matters, you know? Those numbers, I, I know from doing a lot of the policy advocacy work, when I, when I sit down at a table full of decision makers, um, those surveys and engagements really can push things over the line and get them taken seriously, right? And uh, and I think particularly now there's so much happening and there's a lot of opportunity, right? Like that's the other side of this is between the health accord and we're mm-hmm. get, heading to a new provincial well-being strategy. There's a ton, there's a lot of thinking happening around basic income. Like now is a really important time for people to get their voices heard and say like we need to solve some of these things in a long-term way and stop band-aiding them because right now there's a bunch of places you can say that and it's going to be heard which hasn't always been true right and just to avoid you know people going hungry ultimately that's, exactly right that's the bottom you know line. like i think it's just you know stepping back for a second it is pretty awful that we live in the 21st century in a in a society as as wealthy as we are there is enough food and enough money for everyone to eat and people are And that is, that's, you know, at the end of the day, we can't forget that. You're absolutely right. And we do have, oh, about 30 seconds here. And of course, I don't want to let you go without, you know, giving an acknowledgement to a very strong member of the food sharing community, Egg Walters, Mm -hmm. Community Food Sharing Network, stepping away. Yeah, 30 years. And and, and Egg built that organization from the ground up. And and I think, uh, you know, people maybe don't even see how much much behind the scenes work uh, provincial associations like that do in backing up uh, food programs on the ground and so yeah best wishes to egg for sure and also you know um, really kind of excited to see how the association thinks about what's coming for them too it's you know they they play such a critical role and um, and in such a in a way that not everyone sees all the time that's right so congratulations to egg yeah, walters on sure. a much deserved retirement Absolutely. been such a force in the community for as you say 30 years Yep. Josh, I, I thank you so much for sitting with me today in studio to have a chat about food security in this province and, you know, keep up the work that you're doing at Food First NL. Thanks so much. There you go. Josh Smee with Food First NL. And that's going to do it for me today on your VOCM. We'll chat again tomorrow.